4: Wednesday morning, the 23rd of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11 a.m. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The Russian invasion of the Ukraine has begun with its recognition of two Ukrainian regions as independent states.
3: This is the beginning of a Russian invasion of Ukraine as he indicated and asked permission to be able to do from his Duma. Russian tanks in Donetsk and Luhansk are
4: the first steps. And if Joe Biden is right, saying it is the beginning of a full-scale invasion, the problems of a war in Europe will be felt in many different ways. And that's
3: before we get to the bloodshed. I'm going to begin to impose sanctions in response far beyond the steps we and our allies and partners implemented in 2014. And if Russia goes further with this invasion, we stand prepared to go further as with sanctions.
4: Yesterday, uh, Sinn Féin private member's doll motion highlighted uh, that uh, the price of gas has increased by 28% in the last year, home heating by 50%, petrol by 30%, and diesel has increased uh, by 32%. Uh, And this is before Germany uh, announced that it's suspending uh, the 9.7 billion euro gas pipeline, the Nord Stream 2, which we'll see an increase undoubtedly in gas prices here and before the sanctions we heard Joe Biden talking about there a moment ago let's talk about this with Matt Carthy, Sinn Féin TD for Kevin Monaghan A very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning As your motion indicates and as we are all acutely aware the cost of energy is already through the roof. It's going to skyrocket it would seem as a result of what's coming down the line and what's happening in the Ukraine on top of that. Uh, and yesterday, Sinn Féin called on the government to scrap the increase in carbon tax on fuels that are due on the 1st of May on home heating and in October on transport.
2: Yes, I think carbon taxes are unfair at the best of times, but to increase them now you, just at a time when pressures are becoming so unbearable for far too many workers and families, we have to recognise that on top of the cost that you've relayed People in this state pay among the highest rents, mortgage interest rates, insurance, childcare costs, the list goes on, almost anywhere in in Europe. And now they're being burdened, as you say, with ever increasing electricity, heating and fuel costs. And it is bizarre, I have to say, that after spending months discussing a package to address the cost of living crisis, um, the government, after producing a package that fell far short, but that's a debate for another day, is now going to follow that package with a government imposed hike in home heating costs in the next few weeks and in fuel costs in the next few months. To me, as I mentioned in the door last night, it's madness and it's maddening.
4: Okay, and is that a change of mind? Uh, is Sinn Féin changing its position on this? Because I think it was pointed out to you that uh, you weren't scrapping the increases in carbon taxes in the Sinn Féin Alternative Budget.
2: We were, and um, we we argued, as we have done every year, that there was no justification for an increase in the in the carbon tax. What government have? tried to spin is that our alternative budget didn't include provision for scrapping all the previous carbon taxes and that's because that would take a long-term, um, a long-term process in terms of budgetary, um, budgetary mechanisms. But what's absolutely clear in the here and now, families and workers cannot afford any more and they certainly can't afford for their government to impose additional charges on them at this time, particularly when the carbon tax doesn't work if the carbon tax worked, the government would actually be budgeting to take okay. less of it in the coming years because people would be changing their behaviours. The problem with the carbon tax is that it penalises those people who have no option but to drive their own cars or who cannot afford to retrofit their homes.
4: Okay, let me go to John McGann who is Fine spokesperson on climate action in the Shannon, and who. good morning to you and thanks for joining us uh, as well uh, this morning. It, it might uh, only be 2% uh, and uh, in relation to this 50% increase that there has already been on home heating oil, that might seem like very little but you might as well have that 2% in your pocket rather than and in uh, the coffers of government?
5: Well, I think it's really important to outline what the carbon tax actually does, why it's important, and what the benefits are provided. So if you look at this here alone, the carbon tax is going to fund social protection increases, it's going to fund retrofitting, it's going to fund changes in transport, it's going to fund active travel, it's funding more sustainable ways of living in our communities. And that's what this money has been used for, and it'll be £412 million in 2022. So the thing about it is, Michael, is the way I look at it is the carbon tax is progressive because the money raised goes right back to the Irish people. It doesn't go to the exchequer. It goes back to increases in social protection payments, which protects low-income families. It goes back to allow people to live in warmer homes, which will improve their health. It will save them thousands of euro in energy bills, and it protects the environment. But that's all well and good me saying that. But what does it mean for the average Irish person? What does it mean for the average person on the street today? who's listening to me speaking to you in LMFM. Well, take social welfare, for example. It means an increase in the qualified child payment of €2 Euro per week for children under 12 and €3 Euro per week for children over 12. It means an increase in the living alone loan allowance of €3 Euro per week. It means an increase in the fuel allowance of €5 Euro per week. It means an increase in the income threshold for the working family payment of €10 Euro per week. That's all the result okay. of the carbon charges. And if you could just let me just finish about retrofitting, because Matt mentioned retrofitting. 55% of the carbon uh, of the carbon tax this year is going towards retrofitting, and that's through three grants. The first grant is a 100% mm. free grant for those most at risk at fuel poverty. Those of the lowest incomes in Irish society will get 100% free energy upgrades. Okay. So it
4: is- yeah, let's that, that, not go through all the retrofitting grants just yet. Uh, we will be hearing about them a, a, as it goes later in, in the programme. Uh, but uh, outside of uh, the retrofitting, uh, when you add up what's being given back to people and what you're taking off people, that extra 2% on uh, the cost of uh, a fill of oil, uh, will people be up or down? Yeah, but the, the point about. No, the, 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 the question is will people be up or down?
5: In terms of what? In terms of the carbon tax that they would be actually paying each year?
4: will people have more money or less money?
5: No, you see, the point is what we're doing with the carbon taxes, naturally so the carbon tax is
4: increasing. If so somebody is using is, home heating oil, they'll have less yeah, money, exactly. won't they?
5: But what we're doing is we're investing it back into stuff that's going to save you money in the long term. So, for example, by investing, and I won't get into the details of retrofitting because that is a debate for another day, but I'll just give you one example. By investing in retrofitting, we're saving people massive amounts of money on their energy bills in the first place.
4: Mm-hmm, but so the, the point Matt Carthy put to you is that people can't afford to do it. So for those people who can't uh, afford to do it, who have to fill their oil or be cold, uh, if they fill oil will they be up or down
5: but the but this is what i'm saying so naturally enough you'll be down straight away because you are paying mm. carbon tax but the point is the money is coming back to you the irish taxpayer it's not coming back to the exchequer and it's going back to you to help you fund with stuff that's going to save you okay. in the long
4: matt term. matt carthy um, if that was the case then everybody would be satisfied
5: Well, I
2: have to say there's patronising and then there's the patronisation of this government that are actually trying to convince people that they they paying increased costs for their day to day expenses is actually in their best interest. Darren O'Rourke, a deputy from me, do your listeners know, know very well, yesterday, even in the debate, actually exposed. The big lie that goes to the heart that the carbon tax is actually ring-fenced so last year for example 652 million euro was raised in carbon tax just 130 million euro of that was ring-fenced in fact €14 out of every €100 collected in the carbon tax goes to climate action action measures. And we see these in terms of one community that I work very closely with, farmers. Government representatives will continuously say that €1.5 billion of the carbon tax is ring-fenced to go back farmers. What they Mm. don't actually say is that this is a three-card trick, that the 1.5 billion euro is actually less than what the government negotiated away from... Okay,
4: but you just heard John McGann talk about the different schemes that are are going to come online. He was talking about 100% grants for some people. That will relate to very few people, but there'll be quite a a number of people who'll be able to get grants of up to 25,000 euro. We're talking about a multi-billion euro scheme.
2: here's Here's the problem. So the money
4: will be going back to people.
2: Here's the problem, Michael. If I have... If I'm a wealthy person, living in a part of Dublin, for example, if I'm living across the road from a dart station, if there's public transport options available to me and if I have money in the bank... I can actually get from the government 25,000 euro towards retrofitting my home and 5,000 euro towards the provision of a brand new car. The people who are expected to pay for that are those people in Loud and Mead and Monaghan who have no money, who have no um, public transport options and who have no choice but to heat their home through conventional means and to drive their uh, diesel or Mm. petrol-fuelled car. That is fundamentally unfair and all of the measures... That, it, that John has outlined in terms of social welfare payments or whatever the case may be, they can and should be funded by government. But it is ludicrous to suggest... Well, you're talking that that about this
4: will 2%. Will that really make any difference given international affairs uh, unless there's some... Uh, <laughs> He's brought to the Ukrainian situation. Uh, it's not going to make any difference. It's going to be unaffordable anyway, isn't it?
2: I'm always guided by the principle of the surgeon going into the theatre. Rule number one is don't make it worse. Irish workers and families are already overburdened. The amount of people who are coming to our offices and telling us that they cannot afford to make ends meet, that they have to make decisions at the end of every week as to which bill they pay, which essential bill they pay. Mm the first rule of government is that we shouldn't make their lives more difficult and that's precisely what this government all right well
4: let's uh, put that to john McGann because we will be hearing exactly that point from bernardo's and everybody heard about that survey yesterday and the tough choices that people have to make uh, and uh, they're going without heat in order to have food or they're going without food themselves uh, in order that their children uh, can eat so where's the solution there if people don't have the money why are you taking more off them
5: Yeah, well, this is exactly what we're trying to do. So, first of all, the driver... To take
4: more money off them.
5: No, if you just let me finish the point. The driver of high energy prices is not the carbon tax. It's world economic forces that are increasing the cost of fuel. We don't have any choice in that. We can't make it go away. So what we have to do is we have to help people reduce their dependency on fossil fuels. And the carbon tax is the vehicle of the way we do that. But what we're also doing alongside the carbon tax is what was just announced a few weeks ago, which is... 505 million package of measures to mitigate the cost of living and mitigate the very issues michael that you've just raised there and that coincides with the 558 million that was approved in the budget just a few months ago which has only started kicking in now but again what does that mean for the real person on the street today that means a single pensioner in receipt of the fuel allowance would be better off to the tune of around 880 euro this year alone as a result of the change to their weekly rate. That's 880 euro extra that will help them and insulate them against some of the rising costs that you yourself are mentioning. And it's other stuff like the 200 euro energy credit that we've introduced, the 125 fuel allowance payment that we've introduced, reducing the drug payment scheme from 114 euro to 80 euro, the 20% reduction in public transport fares until the end of 2022. These are the types of things that we're introducing to mitigate against those uh, rising and fluctuating energy prices.
4: Okay, but so, do you not accept the point that you are going to make it worse for an awful lot of people.
5: No it's not Michael
4: But I mean it, it's, it's ridiculous to, to, say to say that you're not going now. to. Ma-
5: what I think, well, what I think is ridiculous to be, to be honest is to listen to Matt Carthy there talk about the big lie and this is what is so duplicitous it's so deliberately. So, so,
4: so you don't you don't think it's going to No, no, just, just, just uh, and that's fair enough and I'll, I'll let you call Matt Carthy uh, ridiculous or what he's saying ridiculous in a, in a moment but just to be clear you're, you're saying that it won't make it worse for anybody.
5: No, what, what what I'm very clearly saying here is that the carbon tax is a progressive tax because it
4: helps make people... But do you accept better. that some people are going to be worse off?
5: No, I don't accept that people are going to be worse off. Are you serious? We're protecting, we're protecting the most... You're going to
4: charge more for home heating oil and for gas petrol and diesel. Sorry
5: sorry, sorry, Michael, we are not charging more for home eating oil. You
4: are pet- because you're adding no, carbon not. tax that onto is, it.
5: That is, no, what we're doing is taxing the producers of that carbon. We're not taxing... And that
4: will... Uh, well will you, will, will you are. So that,
5: that, Michael, uh, you're, you're you're just like, I'm, I'm not saying you're ignoring me but you're just not looking at the point that I'm trying to make there. We are recognising that there's an increase in all of this. Fuel
4: no, I'm not, I'm not energy going... Energy no, I'm sorry, I'm just result. not going to let you talk above people's heads. You're charging people more and, and, and you can say that you're taxing the producers and all of that. People understand all of that. They're not stupid but they know that, that at the end of the day when they have to pay their oil bill or their gas bill that it'll be more expensive and the reason for that is a government tax. Now. Put whatever formula of words you want on that. But I think people understand what I mean when I say you're charging people more. So because you're charging people more, people are going to have less money because they have to pay more for their oil and they don't have any other alternative. Do you not accept that? Yeah, no,
5: and I, and I, I accept the point you're making. And the point that I'm trying to make in retaliation to the legitimate point you're making is to say that, yes, while there is an increase in the carbon tax, uh, while there is an increase in the carbon tax, that money then is going back into stuff like retrofitting which is going to save people money that they're spending now by providing them warmer homes healthier lives uh, and helping the environment at the same time and this goes back to the whole point of what a carbon mm. tax is in the first, in the first place yeah. and why I think Féin are being duplicitous about it because to say you're in favour of a carbon tax Uh, To say you're against the next increase of a carbon tax Hmm. is just the cynical politics we're playing at the moment. Okay, well, let
4: let Matt Carty respond to that, because there are a lot of people who will benefit. Matt Carty, I'm sure, I mean, it's the opposite side of uh, the coin for you. There are a lot of people who will benefit uh, because uh, they'll avail of these grants.
2: Well, in the first instance, let's be very clear. In May, the price of heating your home, of filling your tank of home heating oil, will increase by €19. That's not the producer that will be expected to pay that. That is a consumption tax. It is paid on the person who is listening to this programme who wants to heat their home and who has no alternative. What John is saying is that that's okay because at some undefined point in the future, they may have some support in relation to retrofitting their home. At the moment, moment, they don't. John, I didn't... John, in fairness, I didn't interrupt you, and you had quite a long road to indicate that almost every government expenditure As on... I've had you, on, Matt, where you're
5: saying on. that the government are lying, and it's a big
2: lie. Okay,
4: you're well, re- John, let, 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 let him, him finish that. the point. So it's John, not uh, when you're, when it's you're 19, losing,
5: it's very clear.
2: Because okay, it's
4: 19 euro though, the point an
5: alternative, he...
2: An alternative, Matt, and Matt Carthy, the point,
4: the point is that the 19 euro will go to retrofitting somebody's house, and somebody is going to benefit Actually,
2: from that. Actually, it won't, though, because if you listen to the point that I mentioned earlier on, 14 euro out of the, every 100 euro that's in carbon tax will actually go to climate...
4: Okay, but the grants are are, are, are Uh, coming online now. The new grants are coming online. And there
2: are a number of different ways in which we can pay for real climate action measures, which Sinn Féin had actually included in our alternative budget that you referenced to earlier. But this comes down to basic choices. When we want to make decisions, when we want to expend things, whether it be on climate action measures or other areas, who pays for it? And this government time and time again target those people who have no alternative, who can't, do, do not have an option of not driving their car to work or driving their children to school. They do not have an option as to whether or not they change in the morning from um, gas or oil to um, uh, some form of um, alternative heat and source. They don't have those options. And the government is saying it is OK for you to pay more, even though all the evidence
4: points... No, but they might insulate their families houses.
2: and workers absolutely struggling to make but it. But
4: they might insulate their houses.
2: At some point... And the
4: use less gas, right? moment...
2: But here's the fundamental... But in the problem. next few
4: months, that's going but to be no, possible, isn't it?
2: Here's, no, this here's, March, the March. Funda- here's the fundamental problem. People do not have money in their bank accounts... To, even, to make their contribution towards the retrograde. Can,
4: to, uh, can they afford to borrow at
2: 3%? Absolutely not. These are people who are already in debt and this is what's so frustrating about how out of touch government representatives are that they don't realise how difficult so many families and workers are doing. So we can have the broader debate okay. in relation to carbon tax. My view is that it's unfair and All unjustified right. and shouldn't be a okay. mechanism. L- let John McGann come back on that. There's there's fi- a, me just just a, a final, final word
4: to respond to there's that, a, John McGann. There's,
5: there's a particular there's a, just a, just a point in relation point, to... Matt, I, I didn't
1: interrupt you if you, if you
5: would mean not at talking this over me. Just to make the final broader point about carbon tax. Carbon tax and climate scientists, People who have spent decades studying climate action all agree that carbon taxes all are agree. a fundamental requirement and part of the solution for reaching a low carbon economy. Sinn Féin are an absolute outlier in terms of political parties in this country and are out of step with most mainstream climate action thinking when it comes to carbon taxes by opposing it. And the final thing I will say about it is, and I listened to Piers Darty in the door last night, who said, well, we could fund it through general taxation. Well, if we did that, we're taken away from housing, education, health. They talk about funding it through a bank levy. Well, if you we did that, we wouldn't raise the billions that we need between now and Well, you and could charge more. Here's you the, could charge pra- please some please people more tax. Sorry, if I could just finish well, my sentence, would be this is far too thin because people are changing their please, Matt, please, you It's yes, far too simplistic it's not based on reality and the climate crisis okay. is far too dangerous and far too important right. to be playing We we'll let our policy. listeners
2: decide that after who are f- struggling to make their mm. b- I will, yeah, Matt
4: We we'll let our I'm listeners very very decide good good after listening been to been both good. of you and thank you both very much indeed for joining us on the programme this morning We were talking to Finnegale's spokesperson on climate in Shannadaran, John McGahan and uh, to Sinn Féin TD for Kevin Monahan Matt Carthy
0: Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM
4: Well, whatever way you go about it or go about funding it, uh, something has to be done about uh, the way we heat our homes and uh, the carbon taxes that we were talking about will go to the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland, uh, the SEAI, which will be making these grants, these new grants, uh, available from next month. But what the SEAI is saying is that we have to do something to change the way that we heat our homes and pretty dramatically so if it were to meet our 2050 Net zero emissions target. The decarbonisation of heat is very Uh, rudimentary because heating is responsible for 38% of the energy related CO2 emissions in this country. This is according uh, to the National Heat Study. Jim Shearer is head of department for SEAI and on the line with us. Good morning to you Jim and thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, We're not just uh, continuing to use the old ways of heating but we're doing so uh, in greater uh, amounts and using a, a lot more energy to heat an awful lot uh, more premises in this country, it would seem, as well.
6: Good morning, Michael. That's right, and uh, you got it in your intro there. Whilst we don't feel the effects of of the global climate crisis every day here in Ireland, uh, some countries around the world do, and um, we've taken a a really in-depth look at how we use heat in our homes, in our buildings, and in industry, uh, because they're responsible for about a quarter of the total national greenhouse gas emissions in Ireland and of course there there's something that uh, we have to do something about in terms of shifting away from those fossil fuels so uh, I think almost half of um, your listenership heat their home with oil and and another 40% with gas and the rest use uh, solid fuel and and uh, and some on on electricity um, there are businesses in, in um, uh, across the country that are using fossil fuels for uh, for their processes as well we need to find ways to to replace those with renewables uh, and we, we now have really strong legally binding targets uh, in legislation that we have to live up to, otherwise um, we'll be in breach of, uh, of our own national legislation. So we're working to uh, find solutions uh, and provide some of that carbon tax money, as you said, to the people mm. Um, who are listening today in order to help them to do the work that's
4: needed. How quickly do we have to do this uh, if we're to meet our targets uh, by 2050 of net zero emissions? Uh, because uh, as you say, or this study has found 30%, 38% of the CO2 emissions come from heating in this country. So what's the timetable in terms of changing the way we heat our homes?
6: We, we really have to completely change the game in terms of how quickly we've been moving to date. But the worrying trend is that energy, uh, emissions for heat have been going up over the last five years. Now we need to halve them, uh, they need to be going down and we need to completely halve them in the next seven, seven years and, and seven months or so until 20, uh, until 2030. Uh, we then need to continue going on that trajectory uh, to 2050. And by 2050, we need to be completely off fossil fuels, essentially. Um, and any fossil fuels we don't take out of the system, we need to capture the carbon. Um, some some listeners might have heard of carbon capture and storage, where you you might burn some fossil fuel in, in processes you can't otherwise decarbonize and capture that carbon and store it somewhere. But that's tricky and it's unproven so really we need to shift away from fossil fuels we need to halve them by 2050 uh, and get to net zero uh, by tw- halve them by 2030 sorry and get to net zero by 2050 in the context of a trend that's been going up over the last five years
4: Right uh, and is that um, a realistic target?
6: I think we have to believe we can do it there, there's certainly a huge movement that started uh, across the country and I think government is responding in in a very, very strong way. We saw the Climate Action Plan come out uh, in 2021, and that's gonna be revised every year. Uh, that plan has been waiting for the release of this study to get further insights on uh, how it might extend uh, to the next Climate Action Plan in 2022. Um, we've got hundreds of sustainable energy communities popping up across the country. Um, and we've got thousands of businesses engaging with us uh, every year to, to look at how they can re- reduce their emissions. And I think as we see it more and more in the press, and um, you know a recent EPA study said that um, you know the majority of people in Ireland are aware of this and engaged in it now they want to know what to do uh, to play their part um, and I think you know Ireland generally punches above its weight when it comes to dealing with uh, big issues internationally and uh, I think the, the climate crisis will be the next one that we take on as we as we hopefully you know fully emerge from the, the health pandemic we, we looked up the, after each other through that and I think we, we'll start to do that now around this, so so I do think it's entirely possible, but I think we'll we'll have to come together and help each other out to do it.
4: Okay, uh, and you're set to start rolling out grants uh, as uh, they were uh, announced next month, isn't that right?
6: That's right. So there's uh, there's grants available now, so people don't have to wait. There are individual. Uh, energy upgrade grant or all the details are on our website so, so if people uh, don't get it down while I'm talking they can they can come to the website yeah. um, so as much as 80% of the cost of of, of a cavity wall uh, insulation fill or an attic upgrade will be paid uh, by government now so people can come to the website and register for those grants but in the coming uh, weeks or, or in the next month or so we'll have a one stop shop um, service available to, to homeowners who want to take action and that's what that really does is, and what that's aimed to do is to take a lot of the hassle out of it. So that that process will include uh, management of the whole upgrade process, it includes an initial home energy assessment, um, they'll help you through, the One Stop Shop service will help you through the grant application, it will manage the project for you and the contractor works and it will follow up at the end with a new building energy rating to, to show you what where, where you ended up and, and any of those works will be tailored to your budget. Uh, and would available of all of the the current grants that are available for for the technologies that we need to switch to, like uh, electric heat pumps uh, and some of those insulation technologies that will help you reduce the fossil fuel use. But ultimately, we need people to switch away from their gas and oil boiler to stop burning solid fuels in the house, ultimately, uh, and to find alternatives, and um, those grants are really targeted at those those opportunities
4: and and as you say uh, there's uh, grants uh, available from anything like lacking jackets through to insulating your walls and up to the very expensive heat pumps and the deep retrofits uh, that will see grants of up to 25,000 euro there was uh, a a lot of publicity for that uh, which uh, will be uh, met by the homeowner as well Uh, so you're talking about a a lot of money in in doing this Uh, but uh, if those grants come uh, available uh, online from next month uh, when could people hope uh, to draw them down
6: people can uh, start drawing down some of the individual home grants immediately so they don't need to wait mm. um, once we've gone through a process of registering one-stop shops uh, and there's a, there's a growing list of those building at the moment um, they'll become available as I said to homeowners uh, sometime in March uh, perhaps towards the end of mm. March um, everyone will be made aware of that and then immediately um, homeowners can start to choose their one-stop shop from, from a list that will, will appear on our website. Uh, they'll be registered with us and, and approved uh, through a very rigorous process uh, to make mm. sure that they, they provide the kind of quality that, uh, you know, that, that's essential for this kind
4: of work. But they'll enter into a queue, obviously, and uh, they could very well be at the top of the queue. But if they're at the bottom of the queue, how long might they be waiting before they get that work done?
6: It's hard to know uh, now for sure. That's going to really depend on the volume of one-stop shops and and the volume of people who who look to to get going. Um, this is a this is a growing market um, and and already an active market. So we think there's there's a lot of capacity already um, within the, the the service delivery market here to deliver the works that are going to be needed. Um, so I think, as you said, those those who are in early will get get seen to quicker. Um, and uh, we we hope there are a lot of people ready to go and and mm. and, and keen to go. So,
4: but it will be two you know, three years for quite a, a number of people, I take it.
6: No, I I don't think that's uh, that that's necessarily the case. I think it's uh, I think we'll have to wait and see. But I think if if we see a, a high level of demand, I, I think we'd, we'd imagine that more one stop shops would would come up and fill the gap. Um there's already, as I said, there's already a lot of service providers across Ireland. Um, there are a number of training courses at the moment, so I think the government's well aware that we need a lot more skilled people in, in the area mm. uh, delivering these kinds of services. So there's there's a real training ground at the moment, um, and I know there's a lot... there's um, You know, we expect thousands of jobs in this area, um, so there's a lot of people being funneled into this work, and um, we're looking to build a lot of homes across islands okay. as well, so sort of an equivalent skill set there. So we, I think there's an effect that's mm. it's really going to grow, and with, with this kind of government backing, um that sends a real clear signal to the market that this is an area where you know we we've, we've over a million homes that need an upgrade across the country so we're in this for the long haul and mm. I think that that this is not sort of a flash
4: in the pan thing. Well I think that that, that, that probably is the point by the time yeah. you get to, uh, the millionth house as such uh, we'll be talking about a considerable amount of time people will be at the top of the queue on the other hand as well of course Jim and those yeah. grants will come available from March. Uh, thank you indeed for joining us this morning though. That's uh, Jim Shear who's head of uh, department for SEAI Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland.
0: Michael Reed on
4: LMFM. And uh, to that, uh, Moric research uh, for Bernardo's uh, that we mentioned earlier on and how half of uh, parents are cutting back on uh, gas, electricity, repaying loans and medical bills uh, so uh, that uh, they can afford food. 62% uh, of parents who aren't working compared to that figure of 51% overall. Other things like clothing and travel are being put by the wayside because there just isn't the money uh, to pay for Them And you would have to assume that that a lot of these parents won't be uh, too worried uh, about uh, these grants for retrofitting their homes. But the bills are mounting. And as we've been hearing this morning, they're about to get a whole lot more expensive. Let's talk to Suzanne Connolly, who's the chief executive officer of uh, Barnardo's. And a very good morning to you, Suzanne. And thanks for joining us, I suppose, in your survey yesterday. Uh, So what can be done about it?
7: Yes, I mean, you're exactly right, Michael. I mean, when we, we had, had the opportunity to have this research undertaken, supported by ALDI, and this is a national representative sample, and I don't think we expect it to be so quite as prevalent as it is in terms of how much families out there are, are struggling. And they're really worried about the capacity to, to feed their children and having to cut back, as you said, on essential items to ensure that they, they will, of course, prioritise food. And, of course, parents are really stressed by this, not surprisingly, and stressed thirty over thirty percent are, in fact more than thirty percent, thirty four percent are stressed, they're worried about the future and they feel guilty. And they're very aware then as well as the knock on impact of their of how they're feeling on their children. Mm. And one of the things was also talked about was those who had witnessed child poverty firsthand talked about it affecting children's social, emotional and educational development, as well as obviously their physical development. So it's a very serious situation.
4: Yeah, it, it can be very humiliating or demotivating, especially you know when there aren't problems in the house and you're doing everything that you can. Working parents are in trouble and there just isn't a, enough money to make ends meet. I think you've been suggesting that there be a hardship fund.
7: Exactly. I, I, as we know, there is the community welfare for officers throughout the country and they would provide support to families in exceptional circumstances. And we're saying to the government, why wouldn't they create a hardship fund so families could access that, that fund for essential items? And I know no family wants to be in this position that so they have to access a fund like that, but it should be made available to them and it should be made as accessible and as easy to access as possible. I mean, one of the things we do in Bernardo Services is we do provide food parcels and we can, with the generosity of funders such as Aldi, provide vouchers so family can can go and access the food themselves and we've tried to make it as easy as possible but we're not everywhere in the country Mm. and we just think that this needs to be available for for families when they need it. It's a priority. Mm. We're a relatively wealthy country, in fact we're more than wealthy, we're a very wealthy country. We're
4: a very, very rich country and therein lies the irony of the whole thing, doesn't it? Absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you'd wonder, is it necessary? I mean, does it have to be like that for so many people when so few people have so much?
7: That's exactly the case. And the other thing we're saying as well, of course, is, is that access to affordable food needs to be throughout the country as well because there are retailers such as Aldi who do provide nutritious food at, at a cost that most families can very, very much afford. So we'd be encouraging the government as part of their policy um, of addressing is to make sure there is a variety of outlets out there that, that families can access easily because the challenge is if you, if you don't have the mm. access, that you know, that retailer on your doorstep, you tend to go to the more expensive options which then compounds the problem. And it's really, really tough, really tough in families who, who are really counting every cent when there are others of, of us in Ireland who aren't in that position. And we it,
4: it may not feel like it at all at the moment, but hopefully we're coming towards uh, the end of uh, the winter and maybe there'll be some stabilisation uh, before we get to next winter. Uh, it doesn't look very well, given uh, the situation in the Ukraine and that decision uh, from Germany, I yes, say, to block uh, that gas pipeline is going to see a huge increase, uh, I imagine, uh, along with other sanctions Uh, in terms of international prices uh, for gas and oil. Uh, And there's a lot to be concerned about. I think you said 36% of people are already concerned about what's coming down the line.
7: People are very concerned. And as you were saying there, um, in relation to the the price of oil and gas and and the impact of that on on us and all of us, I mean, the more positive thing, I suppose, as you were saying, is we are coming into hopefully to warmer months. I'm really hoping that will alleviate some of the financial strain on families. But notwithstanding that, we also know that inflation is going to continue to rise and food prices are likely to continue as well Mm. to rise. And for families who are really struggling to make ends meet, that's going to put on toll pressure. The government needs to do all it can to support those families. Both families where where neither parent is working but also families where pe- well, one or two of the parents are working and are still really struggling. Mm,
4: yeah, uh, And uh, Bernardo uh, is there uh, to help. Uh, as you say, government should be helping people, making sure that they're not in that situation given uh, how wealthy this uh, country is. And I think we were all probably taken aback by uh, the woman on, on television last night on, on the news saying she was eating beans so that she could give her children, nuggets and chips, uh, and you think of people in that situation. And I gather that there are people in that situation, uh, uh, and there's many of them uh, who are making decisions like that and maybe sitting in cold houses or houses that have uh, the heat on in one room and plenty of blankets on the beds and that sort of thing, otherwise to try and keep warm.
7: Exactly, and what we'd know from, from families that we support in Bernardis is that it's just, it's just really getting earlier in the week where they really just have no money left. So one of the things we're able to do is is support the families by buying things like milk and, you know, milk and fresh fruit and veg and giving some meat as well. But families don't want to be in that position. No, of course not. And, mm. you know, we as we can do something about this as a country. I mean, we've shown throughout the COVID context that when we needed to find resources to support people in large, in society, we did it. So, yeah. why can't we have that concerted effort in relation to really supporting the most needy families at this point as yeah. well?
4: Okay. Suzanne, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. That's uh, Suzanne Connolly, who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of uh, Bernardo's.
0: Michael Reed on, on LMFM.
4: Now, thanks uh, to Paddy and Kells, who was on uh, the phone to us. Paddy says all I have to say about it is uh, that Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are afraid to scrap carbon taxes in case the Greens walk and they lose their jobs. It'll be detrimental this increase in carbon taxes, especially to people living in rural Ireland. He says. He says he, he lives in two. He lives two and a half miles from the nearest shop. And he's no other way of getting to the shops apart from driving his car. I'm too old now to be riding a bike. Uh, Paddy says, I I think this is ludicrous to be increasing carbon taxes when people are already struggling and trying to pay for heating, electricity and petrol. Well, thank you for sharing those thoughts with us. Paddy, Margaret is in Drogheda. She's been on the phone to us as well. And she says, I I think the government reps are living on another planet to the rest of us. Or maybe it's uh, that. They have a much bigger income than the rest of us and don't have to be worried about making ends meet. Have uh, they got an electricity bill themselves recently? The price has spiralled and it's the same at the petrol pumps. How, How does Senator McGahan expect us to be able to pay another increase? It's all very well to say it is for a cleaner, greener environment, but the bottom line is we need to have money to live. Being able to feed my family and keep them warm is at the moment more important to me than the environment is and I'd love to have the cash to retrofit my home. But who has 25,000 euro to spare not most ordinary workers says Margaret in her text to us as well Uh, Sheila in touch saying my electricity bill is three times what it was this time last year it's not fair to increase carbon taxes now because many people can't afford it I think it's outrageous all we can do is hope that we can survive thank you indeed if you have been in touch a lot of people in touch with us I'll come to some more of those comments in a few minutes time Uh, but let's uh, turn our attention to County Meath uh, where there's a disproportionate amount of road traffic accidents and fatalities uh, on the roads. Uh, this is according to local Fine Gael Councillor Alan Tobin, who's on the line and has asked the council to look into the reason behind this. And a uh, very good morning to you, Alan, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, you've been looking at the figures nationally and breaking down what that means uh, uh, on a countywide basis.
1: I have indeed. So, I, I, what I did was a bit, a bit of a, a, an analysis of them. I mean, I'm a driver CPC tra- trainer approved by the RSA. That's, that's my other job, if you like. But um, right. what, 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 in looking at the figures, um, Mead jumps out at, when you look at it nationally. Uh, so, the, the, we had the second uh, largest amount of fatalities last year just behind Dublin. But when we look at Kildare, which has a, a, a slightly larger population than what we have, their figures are half what ours were. Now, ours are, were, 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 for, were... Unfortunately, there was 14 deaths in 2020, uh, one in Mead. Um, and when you look at the first six weeks of 2022, we had three fatalities. And if you were to equate that to, to a, na- a national picture, our fatalities for the year throughout the country would have been 350. But when you look at this year, or last year alone, it was the lowest year with the figures on record it was hundred and thirty six deaths, but Mead had ten point three percent of those deaths. So we're disproportionately higher. And if you look back on figures with the exception of maybe last year and the year before, which you know, we wouldn't have the had the amount of traffic coming through the the, the county with lockdowns and things like that. Mm. Our our numbers going back to two thousand are consistently high, consistently within the top five or six in the country. And I don't know if if, if it's just me, but I feel that there has been a deterioration in the roads. There's not as much enforcement. Yes, there's the Gatso vans. Everybody knows where they are. And then you've got this attitude from drivers, which really, really annoys me, where people will flash to warn you that the Gatso car is ahead. So you're breaking the law. You're speeding. You're you're driving dangerously and somebody thinks they're doing you a favour by flashing the lights at you to tell you to slow down mm.
8: because you're
4: going to get up uh, And do you think it might be different in, in me than it is elsewhere? Uh, because, um, forgive me for saying it because we're talking about people's lives and lives lost on the roads, but uh, you could uh, imagine that uh, this would fluctuate uh, from year to year and one country would be worse because of a, a number of unfortunate incidents. Look up the draw, if you like.
1: and I agree with you there because we're a small country there can be fluctuations and and, 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 you know one major incidents could fluctuate the numbers. But when you look back at the numbers and you look back at it over a number of years, which I've done, you'll see that there is a kind of a pattern and we're always w- w- up there, you know. And when you look at the types of accidents then, it's, it's, the, it's the head-on collisions, you know, the really, really bad uh, accidents which then have, and it's not just the fatalities that, 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 that I was looking at, I was looking at the injuries as well. So for all of those fatalities, there's obviously other people involved in a lot of those instances and the injuries are severe and everything else and they end up um, within the statistics as well but I suppose what I'm trying to do is mm. I'm trying to get a number of agencies talking to one another as well so TII would look after the the, the N2 um, out our way but the council wouldn't look after it do you know what I mean so mm. we've tried to lower um, uh, speed limits up at a, an area called Kilmoon Cross where there's a bus stop and yes it's a 100km narrow road but TII tell us no no we're not lowering the, the uh, speed there logically to me and you it should be a 60 kilometer an hour zone to allow people to be able to get off their bus that and, mm. and cross a road and stuff like that but then there's, there's, there's the RSA and I suppose the, like the RSA take a fee off everybody for their NCT and their and their um, CVRT it's called the Commercial Vehicle Roadworthiness Test and I'm looking for them to try and reinvest some of that money back into County Me to do a promotional um, uh, exercise to on
4: road safety. Hmm. So, so, so there's a, a an objective policy. here to your motion, which uh, was supported by the council, and, and that's to find out what is behind this. You don't believe it, it's a coincidence, if we can put it that way. Uh, and you mentioned the injuries, by the way, which I, I think are very worthwhile mentioning, because uh, when we talk about road fatalities, uh, people... Uh, look on that in whatever way they will and you'll always hear about road fatalities but you never hear about uh, the very serious accidents the life changing rather than life ending accidents uh, that people experience on our roads because of poor driving behaviour and uh, we can be talking about things that really do change people's lives uh, and uh, to some degree people would say would end the life that they had people could end up paraplegic or brain damage, or or very serious uh, things can happen to people as a result of road traffic accidents and you never hear about these things on the news you hear somebody was taken to hospital with non fatal injuries but that doesn't mean that they've not had life-changing injuries
1: exactly and what we're looking at here is from the rsa's point of view you go to their website it's a good news story 136 road deaths they're way down they're down 10 on last year and there's this thing called vision zero and i'd say vision zero to you and you probably say to me i've never heard of it no. and vision zero was actually adopted uh, in 2020, and it's a, an initiative to um, to get n- the numbers of road that's down to zero by 2030. And there's £3.8 supposedly, available for it. And uh, yet nobody's heard of it. And this is, the, this is part of what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to highlight the fact that there's actually money here, that if we have a plan, have a review, uh, go to government and say, by the way, here's where our, 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 our areas are, where we're having accidents. And you know yourself, so some of those areas... Uh, there's, there, there's been a couple of accidents in a couple of areas mm. that we know are aren't um, aren't up to scratch, we'd say, and that do need the investment in them and stuff like that. You look at the the, the traffic core. I know um, councillor Tool uh, from the Rotowhite Municipal District had said when we were talking in this, and I'm not sure I was trying to look for the figures, and we were just trying to verify them, but that the traffic core figures uh, they move from Kel down to Dunboyne, but the traffic core used to have a. a um, a force of up to about forty members, and I think they 're down to about fourteen or sixteen members now, so you know that that has an effect as in you don 't have that presence on the road where 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 people won't drive in a manner that is is, is dangerous or, or without due care and attention mm. because there's that chance that there might be someone on the road driving around behind them or a static uh um, guard on a motorbike or something like that doing a speed check in an unknown lo- location rather than where you know exactly where they are
4: mm, well yeah. if you drive around for water. a year and you don't see a, a guard or something like that uh you're not going to be too worried about it, Uh, you begin to be confident uh, that there is no policing of the road. You know the Gatso fans are there and you know where they are, as you say, so uh, that leaves a a false sense of security. And I mean false in the sense that uh, it doesn't become any less dangerous. Uh, And uh, it's not just the policing, which you think is a a problem, obviously, but you also think that there's a problem with uh, the infrastructure, with the roads themselves.
1: And I just feel that with newer roads a number of years ago when we were building these newer roads that there seemed to be better road markings. You know, you had a yellow line um, on on the outside. You had proper cambers on the road. You you didn't have that breaking up of the surfaces in at the sides of the road. And I don't know if it's because there's larger volumes of traffic on the road. Is it just that our local roads are not as well maintained or the money isn't there for them or whatever else? But I feel that then that they're not putting centre lines in where they used to be I'm driving over at the moment to to, to Kilcock In the morning times, there's a particular road I'm on, and you get onto part of it It has a white centre line, then the white centre line disappears. you are like, where's the white centre line gone? Why is it gone? Mm. Um, And then you're being forced into the middle of the road because the road surface is so bad. And uh, I just feel that that we're not putting in the proper markings. I mean, years ago, you'd come up to a junction, and the the cat's eyes would change from a a yellow colour on the the side of the road to a green colour coming up to a junction to let you know that there was a junction up ahead. Mm. And in particular, driving at night, The dirt on the roads, or or, or in the morning times, it's very dark at the moment, in the mornings and in the evenings. Um, I just feel that something has to be done there with with, with cat's eyes and with, with road markings in particular. You don't need street lights. You just need proper markings on the road reflective markings and stuff like that so I, th- I feel that there is actually a, a problem there and I'd love to see something um, be done about that
4: you okay. know? You're looking for a Meath specific road safety campaign uh, and the motion has been passed uh, what does that mean will the officials now carry out this review that uh, the motion calls for
1: in fairness to the Council, they have uh, turned around and said within the answer on the motion that, they were, uh, that there's a strategy uh, that they are doing, a strategy that provides a review of road accident and trends. So I'm hoping that with this year's numbers and the start of this year, or sorry, last year's numbers and the start of this year's numbers, that, that they are looking at them and saying, yes, OK, look, this, there is a spike here. Let's see what needs to be done. says that the strategy is based on the four E's, engineering, education, enforcement and evaluation. So, I mean, if we have more more of that, uh, we're getting somewhere, you know. But I, I would be particularly interested in um, what they mentioned within the motion, which is a road safety plan. So they're talking about a road safety plan from 2021 to 2030. Um, now, all well and good having the plan, but then it's getting the money and the investment and the, the enforcement and the education that they're talking about here uh, behind that plan. You know, no, no sense in having the plan taken up, uh, you know, dust on, on a shelf. I would like to see action then on it and see can we get down to this vision zero? Like vision zero mm. is it, it's it's fantastic. It's it's great to have that type of a an initiative. And Carlo achieved it this year. Leitrim achieved it uh, and Offaly achieved it.
4: So it is possible, yeah. It
1: is possible. It is possible. And we are driving safer cars. Our cars are getting right. better. Yeah. Uh, mm. You know, mm. and, and technology is getting better, and we have all this adaptive cruise control and all these things that will stop people rear-ending, you know, cars and stuff like that, and we have to look at the, the speed limits them as well I would be a fan of speed limits on local roads in particular of bringing it down to 60 kilometres an hour 40 miles an hour uh, I think that would be a, a game changer for people who, who walk or cycle out on their rural roads you know okay. um, so things like that
4: all right. I, interesting. Uh, for the wrong reasons, I'm afraid. Uh, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Ho- hopefully yeah. those reasons will change I- in time uh, as a result of you bringing this uh, to everybody's attention. That's Alan Tobin, Fine Councillor on Mead County Council.
0: Michael, Michael Reid on LMFM. On LMFM.
4: the Oireachtas Justice Committee has been hearing from a number of groups about antisocial behaviour and indeed how you define antisocial behaviour.
9: There's a spectrum of behaviours displayed by young people that may be perceived as antisocial. So these can range from young people congregating in public places to engaging in behaviours deliberately causing disruption, harassment or intimidation. There's an important distinction to be made, however, between antisocial behaviour and criminal behaviour, and it should be recognised that while some young people may engage in antisocial behaviour, this may never result in a criminal offence due to a number of factors such as age, detection, and reporting.
4: And indeed, uh, the intervention of groups like Faroga—that's Kayleigh Canning of Faroga—which has six recommendations in terms of uh, preventing antisocial behaviour that it presented to the OUGHTS committee.
8: One
9: enhanced investment in the provision of universal youth work. Across the country. Two, investment in research and targeted evidence-based programs and approaches designed to address the issues and needs underpinning criminal or antisocial behaviour, so for example restorative practices or motivational interviewing. Three, implementation of the youth justice strategy prioritising the areas of nationwide GYDP service, early intervention, family support and interagency collaboration. Four, the strengthening of youth justice policies and practices, so taking account of age, maturity, disadvantage and diversity. So This includes enhanced effective services for young adults aged 18 to 24, recognising their unique stage of development. Five, the enhancement of the capacity of all professionals working with young people at risk to engage appropriately and from a child-centred perspective, so really ensuring that the voice of young people informs policies, programmes and systems. And finally, six, the timely processing of young people through the justice
4: system. Kayleigh Canning, as I say. Bernie Mealy is uh, Faroga Area Manager and joins us now. A very good morning to you, Bernie, and thanks indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, It was interesting as well to hear uh, the Oireachtas Committee being told yesterday that 84% of offenders under the age of 21, 62% of all people released from prison reoffend again within three years. This is of particular concern for the people uh, who you represent. Center because you work with 50,000 young people aged between 10 and
8: 18. Hi, Michael. Good morning. Thanks a million for giving me the opportunity to speak to you today. Um, and it's always great for Frege to to have our voice heard in part of the discussion around those 50,000 young people that we engage with and indeed the other young people. I suppose in relation to the statistics you named there, you talk about uh, those relate to young people who actually have been in detention, so who, who have entered um, uh, Oberstown or who have entered prison. But the, the, the majority, I think it's really important to say that the vast majority of young people who re-offend do not go, or who offend, excuse me, do mm. not go on to re-offend. So 74% of young people aged 12 to 18 who commit an offence commit one offence only and never get as far as actually going through the court system or even into prison. Um, So those are the young people, um, some of the young people that we think it's really important to to actually support. Um, And then when you you talk about the the types of young people who end up in prison or in detention, that's a very small percentage of young people. So Mm, when we, again, look at young people aged... Uh, 12 to 18 the the number of young people that commit six or, or more offences is less than one percent of all young people in the population.
4: And that's criminal offences uh, rather than yeah. offensive behaviour and going to prison yeah. is obviously the end of uh, the road if you like. We hear about young people yeah. taking the wrong road but the first step on that road uh, could probably be what f- some people find intimidating behaviour. We heard uh, your colleague there talking about uh, gangs of youngfulists standing outside shops and people intimidated by them and that sort of thing which would be regarded by some as antisocial behaviour.
8: Absolutely. I think it's really important to to recognise that Sometimes that behaviour is literally teenagers just being teenagers. Mm. At that stage of development, it's really important for young people to engage with their peers, to socialise, be part of a peer group. And quite often when those groups of young people are standing on corners or sitting on walls or, you know, being loud and having fun in public places, that it is literally that that's their way of socialising. One of the big challenges for young people um, is the, the lack of spaces and opportunities. Opportunities, appropriate and safe spaces, and opportunities Mm. to socialise. And I suppose that's why our very first recommendation in relation to dealing with um, antisocial behaviour or criminal behaviour is actually about investing in universal youth work, which is making youth work available to all young people, regardless of whether they have any issues or needs. All young people have the right. And deserve a space in their own communities to connect with each other to connect with their community to connect with adults um and and good influences in their community, so quite often you know absolutely it can be very intimidating if you're walking by a bunch of kind of big tall sixteen mm. year old boys who have their hoods up and are kind of Boisterous, but <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah. that's just teenagers doing what teenagers yeah, and do. And
4: quite often, you know. they're very self-conscious and that sort of thing, and they've nowhere else to go. There's nothing to do. But quite yeah. often, that uh, when we have that kind of conversation, I'm sure you've heard it all before yourself, Bernie. But uh, people will call in and say, "Sure, there was never anything to do. I grew up and there was nothing to do, and we made our own fun. Uh, why can't they do that these days? Uh, do we need and that's more?" That's what they're doing. <laughs> okay.
8: That's what teenagers yeah. are. To, no, but like
4: when you when you talk about youth cafes uh, and yeah. uh, providing uh, places for them uh, that would give some sort of stimulation uh, and interaction like that, uh, uh, is that necessary?
8: Oh absolutely you know that' youth work is a really important part of our education system it's part of the non formal education system, and you know young people spend the majority of their time outside of school where they learn you know valuable skills in school, but actually in youth work they learn life skills they learn how to communicate how to listen to each other, mm. um, how to make good decisions they make mistakes in in i suppose safe places around adults who will guide and support them to make the right decision Well that's
4: important I imagine because we all make mistakes and uh, if you're making them in a a safe place that's one thing but if you're making them uh, out uh, where anything goes sort of thing uh, it could be a very different thing and it could be that wrong step on the road which could lead uh, to things like prison or, or other problems
8: Absolutely. I mean, you never want to think that one bad decision is going to, to lead you down a, a very difficult path. There are always opportunities to change your behaviour, to make a better decision, to learn from your decision. That's how we all learn, you know. Yeah. So it's really important to invest in, you know, youth work. Um, uh, Feroiga, or Ferroiga have a, a, a network of volunteer-led Ferroiga clubs around and um, Mead and across the country. We have um, a team of really strong volunteers who support young people in their own communities every week to make mm. good decisions, you know, and it's really important that communities now, after two years of a pandemic, come together, adults in communities come together and are, are activated to, to providing those supports for their young people. Well, there's um,
4: 50,000 young people who testify to that, uh, and uh, you, yeah. you, you do uh, an awful lot of work with those uh, young people. Uh, you've uh, huge involvement in uh, the Garda Youth Division Projects.
8: Yes, yeah, so there are 105 Guard Youth Diversion projects across the country and the Guard Youth Diversion projects, their purpose is to work with young people who are at risk of offending or reoffending, and to support those young people to change their behaviour and make better decisions in the future. Brogan manages 40 of, of those 105 and indeed within Loud and Mead we have the, the Cable project in Drogheda and Mid-Loud and we have the NYPD project and the LAR project in Mead and those projects work with young people aged, um, they, they had worked with young people aged 12 to 18, but recently they've expanded um, to encompass work with 8 to 11 year olds and up to the age of 25 and engaging with families through our family support services as well and that expansion really is based on our understanding that the earlier you intervene with a young person or a family, the more likely you are to have a positive outcome. Mm. So if you start to work with a young person at age 8 who may be displaying some um, behaviours that might be problematic you can put in, I suppose, a level of intervention, involve them in clubs and groups, involve them in their community, build really strong positive connections with adults in the community and positive peers around Mm. them and sometimes that's enough to divert a young person away from from the likelihood of offending in the future. Really because
4: we've seen so many problems uh, and locally we've seen so many problems uh, with uh, young people ending up Uh, going down the wrong path uh, and uh, the drugs gangs uh, locally here uh, have been shocking, not just uh, locally but nationally uh, and beyond because of uh, the way they behaved and what ends up as terrible murders, a lot of them in prison now and all of that sort of thing. Uh, And you hear people saying, oh he's just bad. Uh, Do you believe uh, from your experience working with young people that people are born bad or is it that uh, they've just been allowed to drift in that direction Uh, and what isn't anybody there to intervene and guide them in a different direction?
8: Well, I can just speak from my personal experience. I have worked with young people and teenagers for almost 25 years and I've never once met a bad young person. And all of the work that I've done has been youth justice work. So in relation to working with young people who have offended or are at risk of offending. No, it's... It's not that there are bad people, it's the circumstances and we have to remember you know, yes, these communities have had, have been ravaged by by drugs and and gangs and really difficult circumstances and everybody has suffered, but the young people have suffered too and the young people who engage in these behaviours are victims. You know, they themselves have ha- a number of risks and needs in their lives and in order to support people to change their behaviour and, and be more positive, we need to address the underlying causes for their behaviour. So lots of these young people, you know, um, are growing up in in communities where maybe Certain antisocial or criminal behaviours are acceptable, or they're looking up to people in the community who who um, are antisocial and criminal because they seem to have power, or they, you know, they have the money or the cars. These young people often are coming from families where maybe their parents don't have the the capacity to parent them appropriately. There mm. may not be enough structure or boundaries or. Or, or, I suppose supervision in the home. Mm. These young people often struggle at school and don't get the right supports there. They, you know, they, they find themselves with little to do. We spoke about leisure and recreation. That's that's a big risk factor for for a young person is is not actually having. Um, any leisure interests or recreational interests. So, all the clubs and groups in a community, be it the sports clubs, the youth work clubs, mm. the dance clubs, whatever they are, they are doing a huge service to try yep. and support young people.
4: No, oh, I think so. Um, and uh, I think uh, people listening today uh, in some of uh, the estates where Faroga doesn't have a hold and as a result uh, doesn't have a a chance to influence those young people uh, maybe in touch with you and uh, inviting you in and uh, trying to increase your membership uh, for that manner because it is great work that you do and it is work that is very successful with young people
8: absolutely we see great outcomes with young people and it's all young people you know not Mm. just those young people who have difficulties and needs we we do a huge amount of work with all young people. And we would welcome, we would be delighted if anybody uh, wanted to get in touch and were, were interested in engaging with us, whether it's to become volunteers or whether it's to, to get their own young people involved in us. Um, they, they can email us on info at and we'll direct you in, in, in the, the right direction. But um, absolutely, it's an absolute pleasure and a privilege and a joy to be able to work with young people and families and communities to try and support them to reach their full potential.
4: Okay, 50,000 of them. Thank you very much indeed, Bernie, for joining us uh, this morning. Bernie Mealy is uh, Faroga Area Manager.
3: Michael Reed on LMFM. In the Lord's name, does Putin think gives him the right to declare new so-called countries on territory that belong to his neighbours? This is a flagrant violation of international law demands a firm response from the international community
4: that's uh the american president uh, joe biden uh, the Taoiseach michael martin has obviously been speaking about uh, the situation in uh, the ukraine as well and i think uh, Mihal martin would identify with what joe biden was saying just there
3: unity is our strength uh, and there is very clear unity of purpose uh, between all of the eu, EU member
4: states um, in relation to this issue um, from from ireland's perspective as a small open democracy We celebrate 100 years of unbroken democracy this year, and the sentiments articulated last evening by President Putin uh, are not acceptable to us in the sense of small states uh, are entitled to their nationhood, uh, to to their freedom and to their independence, Uh, and I think the statement creates a chilling effect for for many smaller states uh, across the the, the, uh, European continent. Um, and beyond. So the principles are important, uh, that we stand by those principles of self-determination and sovereignty. All right, uh, that's uh, Mihal Martin, uh, the Taoiseach, speaking in Germany yesterday. Let's talk uh, to John Molyneux, who's spokesperson for the Irish anti-war movement. The Irish anti-war movement is holding a protest outside of Dáil Éireann tomorrow evening at half past five. And good morning to you, John, and thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, do you agree with uh, Messrs. Biden and Martin?
10: Well, good good morning, Michael, and thank you very much for uh, having me on uh, and um, giving a hearing to the anti-war position. Um, No, I do not agree uh, with um, uh, Joe Biden or Michael Martin's uh, support for him. Um, It is not a question, of course, of agreeing with Uh, Putin and Putin's statements Putin's statement about Ukraine was horrible in in my opinion especially given the history of Ukraine which I'll say a bit about if I get a chance but that's not the point the point is that we stand on the brink of uh, a devastating war a war which first and foremost will be devastating for the Ukrainian people and both sides that is the US side and the the Russian side are ratcheting it up Uh, uh, they are Uh, engaging in brinkmanship and we want to say very clearly they should stop and we should pull back from a devastating uh, uh, war uh, Ah. and uh, our position is one of neither washington nor moscow neither nato nor russia we don't
4: support what about Uh, kiev Uh, because the ukrainians uh, appear to be appealing uh, for help uh, certainly uh, are talking tough in terms of not being afraid of the Russians and they're not going to uh, accept an invasion
10: well uh, i don't I'm not asking them to accept an invasion that would be that would be absurd uh, I don't know about appealing for help uh if let's say if we talk about military help, which I don't think is on offer, the results if there was a American or or European military intervention in the Ukraine, this would be absolutely catastrophic.
4: Well, there is. There's American troops in Estonia, Lithuania and Latvia, and uh, the reason for that, uh, the Americans say at least, is to stop uh, the Russians uh, invading uh, further territories.
10: Yes, but if you remember the Cold War, throughout the Cold War, the Americans extended their power across the world on the Excuse that they were preventing um, a, a Russian invasion of everywhere. Everywhere was being taken over by communists. The Russians were always about to invade uh, Western Europe. That's why we built up a nuclear missile mm-hmm. uh, uh, and huge armory and so on. When you have two imperial powers facing each other, each side always justifies its arms, its military buildup, and its interventions by reference to the other side. Uh, if uh, this is this is what history shows, this mm. is what led to but the, the
4: Russians first- have invaded, haven't they? I mean, they're in Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, and uh, it seems to many of us uh, that that's a, a bit like them being in Belfast and they're about to head for Dublin.
10: Uh, yeah, well, that's the kind of talk we get in this situation. Uh, uh, um, at, the be- at the before the First World War. And I just think a bit of history is useful here.
6: Mm.
10: We were told two things. We were told that it was necessary to defend poor little Belgium. Right, That's mm. what we were going to war for, to defend Belgium, which was described as Catholic Belgium in the south, but just Belgium in the north, for obvious reasons. And we were also told it was better to fight in Europe than to be fighting at home, like the Germans were just about to be um, uh, uh, invading Ireland. What actually happened, what actually happened was that 40,000 Irish people died in the First World War, and the only troops seen on the streets uh, of Dublin or of Ireland were the black and tans. So you have to distinguish the rhetoric and uh, the reality in this situation. NATO is not a defensive alliance. NATO has extended itself right to the borders of Russia. NATO is a U.S. front to enlarge U.S. power and to isolate Russia and behind that, China. Mm. This is an inter-imperial struggle going on for who runs the world between the U.S., and on one side, and the Russian okay. Chinese block on the other, and we should be on neither side.
4: I, I suppose what I meant by the Russians being in Belfast, heading for Dublin, uh, was uh, that they're in Donetsk and Luhansk and heading for Kiev, uh, an imperial power that is uh, 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 already invaded. Uh, huge swathes of uh, the Ukraine uh, and the fear is a full-scale invasion. Uh, Ukraine uh, has the right, has it not, uh, as a sovereign state uh, to join that uh, alliance, whether it's a a military alliance or otherwise. Uh, That's a a decision for Ukraine to make, not for the Russians to make.
10: The um, the, the question of Ukraine joining NATO, I think, is uh, misleading in this situation. First of all, not likely to happen anyway, even on the part of... um, Uh, uh, the West. Uh, Secondly, self-determination means they have a right to an independent state. It doesn't mean to say that everything that that state chooses to do is correct. Um, The existence of Ireland has absolute right to be an independent country, to be an independent united country. In my opinion, that doesn't mean to say that we should be members of NATO, for example. No, we should be neutral. Ukraine, in my view, the Ukrainian people would be best served not by lining up either with the US or with Russia but by being neutral like
4: but if they were to join NATO should we invade and stop them you know because it's the same argument argument in the other direction uh, with uh, the Russians invading to stop them uh, i can mean I, that's a decision for a sovereign state to make itself is it not
8: should
10: we invade and stop the Russians.
4: No, so, so stop the Ukrainians from joining NATO. Uh, no, no,
10: no. Nobody should be invading anybody. The, the of, of course not. Sorry. Mm. Uh, the the point is that if you have a war of this kind, who will suffer most? The Ukrainian people will suffer most. The Ukrainian people have suffered immensely uh, over 150 years. The... Uh, uh, The word Ukraine means borderland, and they have paid in blood time and again for being on the border between empires. They have been invaded at various times uh, by uh, Poles, Austro-Hungarians, the Russians, Mm. the Nazis, and so on. In the 1930s, they suffered catastrophic famine under Stalin, uh, in the Second World War, they were invaded, of course, by the Nazis. Some Ukrainians tragically fought with the Nazis. Others fought with the Russians. They suffered enormously. At the end of the um, Second World War, large numbers of Ukrainians, Crimean, tatars mm. for example, hundreds of thousands of them were deported to Siberia. Mm. Um, they had Chernobyl. They have had a long history of suffering and a war in or over Ukraine would just mean more suffering.
4: But does that mean that they have to be uh, obedient and not join NATO at the behest of Moscow?
10: No, it's not a question of they have to do anything. It's a a question of stopping war and stopping the propaganda um, and warmongering that both sides are engaging in, that Biden has been engaging in, and Uh, That Britain has Mm. been engaging in particularly, Johnson has been particularly flagrant about this, and the Irish government is lining up with Biden and Johnson. Can I just say something here, Michael, if you would allow me? We have to broaden the focus a little bit, because if you just look at the question of Russia and Ukraine, Mm. well, something must be done. This leaves out the question of what the motives uh, are for um, uh, the Americans. Can I?
4: If but, I like but, the, but if you leave the Americans to one side, what about self-determination? Why can the Ukrainians yeah. not make decisions for themselves? Why do they have to do one thing or another depending on how Moscow feels about it?
10: I'm all for the Ukrainians being able to make decisions for themselves. So, Michael.
4: Yeah, but, but the, that's what's one of the art of this, isn't it? That the Russians are, are, are asking NATO to put a permanent ban on the Ukraine joining NATO.
10: I'm not supporting the Russians in this, Um, Michael, but I don't think you can leave the Americans out of it. Now, if we just narrow the focus so we don't look what's going on in the world, we live in one world, one planet, and you have to look at the bigger picture. It is very much in the interests of the U.S. and the Irish government here, by the way, not to look at the broader picture. Let me give you an example And I know people say, well, don't talk about anywhere else. But let me give you an example. It's important Mm -hmm. in this. I'll give you two examples. One example is Egypt. In Egypt, there was a military coup and an extremely oppressive regime came to power led by General al-Sisi. And there are about 60,000 political prisoners in Egypt. America never said a word about it. No question of sanctions on Egypt, nor from any other European power. Or the situation uh, with Israel and Palestine. No question of sanctions, full support for Israel. No question of self-determination for the Palestinian people. That, mean, that is because NATO is using the arguments about self-determination to expand American power. That's really what is going on. And Micheál Martin and the Irish government always line Ireland up with America in this, as in Shannon, uh, for example. And we shouldn't be. We should be genuinely
4: neutral. All right. Well, the Irish anti-war movement will be holding a a protest at half past five uh, tomorrow outside of Leinster House, if people do wish to join you. We're out of time, John, but thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us as always.
10: Uh, And thank you for the opportunity
4: to speak, Michael. Thank Thank you you. very much indeed. Uh, That's uh, John Molyneux, spokesperson for the Irish anti war movement.
0: Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. LMFM.
4: Now, we're still getting a lot of calls about uh, carbon tax. Hillary on WhatsApp, uh, the government is giving people the fuel allowance on one hand, then taking it back with uh, the other hand. Uh, she says uh, a lot of people like herself are struggling. The government doesn't seem to care. I'm sure the government will be disappointed to hear that, Hillary, and uh, I just not. Um, we'd uh, John Navin in touch with us too. He phoned us to say anyone who says Ireland is a rich country is talking rubbish as the country has a, a huge debt it has one of uh, the highest national debts uh, I think per capita in the world I was reading this morning alright John but it is a very wealthy country having said that and he, say, he says there's a small percentage of wealthy people here and hard working people are heavily taxed and they have to pay for all of these price increases in their everyday living that's exactly the point John uh, and uh, maybe there's food for thought in that uh, if the money is in the country um, well it's in the country and it's up to us uh, to decide whether it should be distributed between between. between the people or if uh, the very wealthy stay very wealthy and the rest of us Uh, try to make ends meet. Mairead Andrada rang us about antisocial behaviour and she says it was very refreshing to listen to Bernie from Faroga on the programme this morning. Young people get a lot of bad press, but they're not all bad. In fact, the majority are decent and kind and sometimes just need a steer in the right direction. We need more organisations like Faroga providing an outlet for our youth and bringing out the best in them. By being involved in their local communities. Absolutely, Marade. Well said, and thanks uh, for sharing that with us. I'd go further. I'd say all young people are good. I think they're all born good. Uh, Things happen, uh, whether that's because of where they live or who they live with or what's happening in their world or or because of disadvantage or different things that happen. Uh, But uh, groups like Froga certainly do very good work. And I think uh, Bernie was a great ambassador for Froga this morning. And uh, I think it probably uh, could be an idea for some local estate To look at what's happening in their estates and think, uh, you know, would that have a positive impact on the kids uh, when they're eight and nine, 10, 11, uh, that uh, they get involved in positive things uh, and have something to do rather than. Uh, you know, the things that we don't want them to end up doing uh, and the consequences of all of that. Anyway, thanks uh, for the call to the programme. Uh, we're going to hear uh, a little bit uh, of uh, the discussion in uh, the doll yesterday about uh, the release of Michael Shine, a consultant, disgraced consultant, uh, former consultant in our Lady of Lords hospital Known at that time as Dr. Shine, uh, but was abusing boys at the time. He's been in prison the last number of years and he's been released today.
11: Now, he may have served his prison sentence, but there is no end in sight uh, for Michael Shine's uh, victims, for the survivors. Uh, up to 100 men were expected to receive compensation, um, but a legal dispute between the medical missionaries of Mary and the HSE over the indemnification of the HSE for legal costs and related matters has thrown the compensation scheme into uh, doubt. Minister, this is a case of lawyers differing while survivors continue to suffer. Now, I've worked with the Dignity for Patients group for many, many years. I know many of the survivors personally and they have suffered more than anyone uh, should. Many of the men feel that they are being re-traumatised um, as the legal roads rumble on completely oblivious to their pain and suffering. So, Minister, will you intervene with the HSE and urge the religious order to do the right thing uh, by victims and survivors and argue and urge them to deliver on their legal and moral obligations to
12: survivors?
4: Local Labour TD, Jed Nash, was uh, putting those uh, questions uh, to Minister Michael McGrath.
12: My understanding is that there are 116 plaintiffs uh, who sued the medical missionaries of Mary, the congregation, uh, and the HSE for damages arising from uh, Dr. Shine's uh, abusive activities, and in the period December 19 to March um, 2020, to 116 place, plaintiffs formally discontinued their claims as against the HSC by serving notices of discontinuance. The plaintiffs are continuing to pursue their claims as against the congregation and its insurance company, Allianz. The HSC and the State Claims Agency are seeking to recover from the congregation and Alliance the costs that the HSC and the uh, State Claims Agency have incurred in defending the claims. These efforts to recover the legal costs are not an impediment to the settlement of the 116 claims brought um, uh, by the congregation Allianz. That's a critical point, and the HSC and the SCA have recently agreed to mediation. Uh, in respect of the recovery of costs issue uh, with the Congregation and Allianz. So the key point is that that is not an impediment uh, to the resolution Good. of the the claims by the individual.
4: Okay, that's Michael McGrath responding to Jed Nash in the Dáil yesterday. Uh, thanks uh, to Shane texting us saying that there's been uh, an accident on the M1 going northbound uh, just before the RD exit and traffic is very slow on Approach. Thank you, Shane, for that. Uh, Hopefully that's uh, clearing up. I think Shane was in touch with us uh, around half ten. Uh, Somebody else uh, in touch with us uh, saying uh, that uh, there's people who are uh, convicted of crimes and they walk free from prison after serving three years. Um, oh, this um to do with Michael Shine. Uh, Pat Cusick in touch with us. Thanks, uh, Pat, uh, for getting in touch with us. Uh, he's uh, just sending out a, a message uh, to those people we were listening to there a moment ago who were having those uh, legal problems. Stay strong, he says. It's never your fault uh, and uh, let's not uh, allow... Uh, this to hurt us anymore thank you Pata. indeed Uh, an appropriate way to finish off uh, the program uh, given the day that's in it that's our program for today god willing we'll see you for our next program tomorrow morning at 9am right here on lmfm good morning bye-bye
3: the michael reed show podcast tune in weekdays from nine on lmfm to contact us email now michael at lmfm.ie